Let me tell you about pain. So if any of you have had to deal with pain in a hospital, you're probably familiar with the smiley face chart. Right, so it's a row of faces with a number underneath, and on one end, it's a very happy, smiling face, and as the numbers increase, you ultimately get a face in total agony, which is a 10. And so as a medical student, I've had to use this scale when talking to people. But as a patient, I really hate this scale. <laughs> and so I really hate the fact that pain gets reduced to a single number. For me personally, pain is perceived. And so the more occupied or distracted my mind is, the less I will notice the pain, regardless of what it actually feels like. So I know this because I've been living with pain for the last three years. And so in August of 2019, on what I thought was a perfect summer evening, I picked up my bike from a bike shop and set out for about a 40 mile bike ride. And 99% of this ride is on what I would consider my favorite roads in Johnson County. But about 15 miles in, there's a half mile stretch on Highway 22 that doesn't have a shoulder. And this particular day on that stretch, I remember seeing headlights of a car coming up behind me illuminating the asphalt to my left. And that's the last thing I remember because that car hit me at 61 miles per hour. So when I got to the hospital, I had no idea how bad my injuries had been. The doctor there asked if there was somebody he should call. And so having no immediate family in Iowa City, did the next best thing. So I called my best friend from med school, and I called my PhD advisor, David Stoltz. And David's also a critical care physician, and so he made it to the hospital as fast as he could, and he was able to go with me everywhere I went in the hospital. And he was with me the entire night. He was with me when they told me that I'd fractured my spine, that I had fractured my pelvis. He was with me when they took me off to emergency surgery. And he was with me when the doctors told me that they didn't know if I would be paralyzed or if I would make a full recovery. So in the meantime, my parents were frantically trying to find a way of getting to Iowa. My mom's in Seattle and my dad's in California. So I would spend the next two weeks in a hospital bed. I had cords coming out of everywhere and I couldn't use my legs. My dad had to physically move me around if I wanted to change position. And every time I would move, I risked setting off these incredible back spasms. The only way I can describe 
the feeling of these back spasms is having a knife stabbed into your lower back. And so I had this intense fear. And so my time became controlled by a little green button that I could press. And it was connected to the IV pain medication pump. And it would turn on every 20 minutes, and then you could press it, and it would give you another dose of pain meds. Now, through this whole time, even though I was constantly fighting the pain, I also have some fairly happy memories from being in the hospital. And so I was surrounded by my family. So my dad, my mom, my brother were all with me. Even my grandmother and my aunt had flown up from Mexico City. And they helped keep my mind off the pain. They even kept me entertained. And so I remember one time, um, probably not for our sake, but my brother and I were watching my mom's mom tease my dad. And we were thrilled. <laughs> and so right after that, my brother said, hey, how you doing? And I was like, kind of having fun. And so that's what they were doing, keeping my mind off the pain. But they weren't alone, right? They were supported by a bunch of people, the community that I'd built in Iowa City. So my best friend from med school, Jane Buchanan, was always there, always at my side. She was now, she's the one who called my parents to let them know that I'd been in an accident. And so now she was helping them cook and go grocery shopping and do laundry at her house. And my buddy Miguel, who was also always there, uh, he actually traded cars with my mom because she couldn't drive my stick shift. And I even saw friends who I don't get to see on a normal, everyday basis. So um, some of my best friends, Dana and Carly, their calendars are nuts. You can never hang out with them. But they made time to come see me. They would come before work, and they would come after work. And Dana one time jokingly said to me, she's like, hey, you know, you don't have to get hit by a car when you want to hang out with us. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so I would go on to be, I would spend a month in the hospital. And the time I was in the hospital was not, unfortunately, was not the hardest part of this whole thing. For me, the hardest part has been dealing with the uncertainty of what my life was going to look like. And so, again, when I got to the hospital, at some point, somebody said, you know, you could be doing, you could be running another half marathon in six months or you could be in a wheelchair full-time. And so that was what they gave us as a prognosis. And so in the hospital, I learned how to use a wheelchair safely. I learned how to transfer into a car and out of a car, um, onto a shower bench, onto a toilet seat. I learned how to get dressed and changed and everything you do 
trying to put socks on. You should try putting on your socks if you can't use your legs. So, but all of this was abstract. Being in the hospital very much felt like being at summer camp. It was this thing you were doing that was hard, but it wasn't my life. And so the reality hadn't hit until I went home. But I didn't really get to go home because I couldn't go back to my 1920s apartment. Right? It was a, had a spiral staircase to get up. It had narrow doorways. There was just no way that I could physically get into my apartment. And so my parents moved me out. And it was my first night in this new ADA accessible apartment with somebody else's furniture in it that my reality finally set in. And it was there that I kept thinking back to a conversation that I had had with my best friend, Justin. In our first phone call, after he heard about my accident, he said, I'm really glad that your mind is okay. From here on out, everything is just problem solving. And it's something that really stuck with me. Um, because it's kind of a weird thing to say to someone, especially after they get hit by a car. And because there's something to it. And Justin's in a really unique place to tell you that. And so Justin is a congenital amputee. And he would go on to represent the United States at the 2004 Paralympic Games in Athens as a swimmer. And so he and I actually met swimming on the same club team, but we became really good friends as adults coaching the Shadow Seals. So the Shadow Seals is a swim team for people with physical disabilities. And so it National and international swim meets, Justin and I used to joke that I was the token able-bodied coach and that I was there to push wheelchairs from one side of the Olympic pool to the other, to carry prosthetics one way to the other, get swimmers in out of the pool, etc. So yes, it's ironic. <laughs> and so hanging out with Justin through all these adventures that we've had, it's you don't really notice or it can be hard to notice some of the challenges that he might face in a wheelchair. And he likes to say, I make this shit look easy. <laughs> and it's true, but that also hides the fact that there's a lot of intentional problem solving that goes on behind the scenes. And that's something that's really served as a really great example for me. And so, for instance, uh, in the first two weeks that I was hospitalized, and we still didn't know if I'd be able to walk or even stand. Uh, my dad thought that I wasn't really processing the magnitude of what was happening. He thought I was in denial. And so he came up to me and he confronted me. He confronted me about it. And I did two things, partly inspired by Justin. 
The first was I told him, hey, uh, I still have bowel and bladder function. So we might not walk, but we won't be using a diaper. So big win. <laughs> the second <laughs> was I was looking at adapted mountain bikes that I'd seen people use. And they're essentially this weird cross between an ATV, a mountain bike, and a tricycle that you can sit on and do crazy and stupid things on. And so this is the kind of thing that I was doing. And part of that perspective was thanks to Justin. And Justin was also giving me tips. And so he's the one that um, told me to get a narrower wheelchair so that I could fit between doorways and navigate the world easier. He told me that wheelchair gloves are totally lame. <laughs> and so you should just buy some super glue and super glue your blisters. <laughs> it's cheaper. And so these are the types of things that I was able to get from Justin. But he didn't always have a magic answer. So this was in August, and so as fall turned to winter, living in Iowa, it started snowing. And so my first snowfall, I realized, wow, this is really difficult. Using a wheelchair in the snow is tough. Even when it gets plowed and you get these little tiny snow banks, your front wheels can get caught, you lose traction, it's pain. So I texted Justin, trying to figure out, okay, well, how am I gonna do this? And I said, hey, how do you deal with snow? And I was kind of frustrated because his answer was only two words, and it was, I don't. <laughs> so, after the initial frustration left, I realized I'm struggling with this not because I'm incompetent or because I'm new to using a wheelchair, but it's just genuinely hard for people in wheelchairs to navigate snow. And so these are some of the things that I was learning from Justin. Now, when I told Justin about tonight's event, and I told him about the theme, generosity. His first thought was, well, where do I fit into this, right? And he's like, all right, you know, your family kicked ass at doing the family thing. Your PhD mentor was great. Jane and Miguel, they didn't jump off the sinking ship, you had friends like Dana and Carly who actively came on board. But Justin was still in Seattle. Our relationship was more or less the same. Um, and it hadn't really changed. And so it took me a little bit of time to figure out how to articulate exactly what I wanted to say. But I think it's this. I think Justin's generosity came long before the accident. It came before me even moving to Iowa. And 
his generosity came in a friendship and an openness that supported me during formative period of my life. And it was so strong that it was something I could keep drawing on. Even after I moved to Iowa, I started medical school, I started a PhD. And his friendship, the awesomeness of it was such that it was able to easily accommodate this horrific accident without having to change. And so I continue to draw on Justin's friendship and that reserve, and I haven't found the bottom yet. Thank you.